Good morning, Greenville Oaks. My name is Keith Maloney. I'm one of the ministers here, and I'm privileged to bring you a, a sermon today. Our, our regular preaching minister, our lead minister, Colin Packer, is away and has asked me to fill in for him. So if you're a guest with us, especially if this is your first time, I hope you come back next Sunday or whenever the next opportunity you have, because he is a, a gifted communicator and a man who is passionate for God and his kingdom. We're blessed to have he him as our, uh, as our senior minister here. <clears throat> We're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning, if you'd like to get your Bibles and turn there. Uh, but if you don't have one with you, they'll be up on the screen, so you can follow along there, whatever is convenient. Uh, recently, we were over in East Texas with my son and his family as one of our granddaughters celebrated her uh, birthday. And of course, uh, as her grandparents, we were there, and the other grandparents were there, and it reminded me of when we first met them and that family. We had heard that our son was to marry uh, their, their daughter, and so we went to the obligatory dinner where the parents meet the parents, you know, that, that has to happen. And they're, a, they're a really a neat family, and we just had a great time visiting with them and getting to know them, and then... It was winding down. They brought the check at the restaurant where we were, and I picked up the folio and stuck a credit card in there, and uh, her father insisted on paying, and you had one of those conversations that you have, you know, about who's going to get the check. And in, in that conversation, his other daughter said, look, you need to let my dad pay for this because there's more of us than there are of you. And I... I smiled and I said, well, honey, there's not any you and us now. It's just all us now. You know, we just have a natural way of thinking in terms of us and them, don't we? I mean, the world just conditions us to do that from the time we're just little bitty kids. I mean, it's us in my family and everybody else in their family out there. And then we, we start to school, and it's us guys and them girls, pardon the grammar if any teachers are here. And then, and then we get a little older and we start having uh, sports competitions or, or maybe it's band or academic competitions, and it's us on our team, us at our school, and them on the other team at the other school, Right? And that goes, that goes on all the way through college and beyond. Did you notice uh, last month at the Olympics, it was us in the U.S. of A. and them and all of the other countries in the world. It's just, it's just inherent in us. We just do that, don't we? But sadly, it's not just with families or gender or competitions that that occurs. Because we've tragically seen uh, recently incident after incident in our nation and even in our own area here, where hostility over race boils over and results in people being killed. Innocent people being killed. And it comes from that, that view that it's us versus them. And it's not something that religion is foreign to. Because time and again throughout history, we have seen people of one religion attacking people of another religion that they don't think is right. Because it's us versus them. Whether it's something as innocent as 
little kids with cooties. Do they still say that? Kids still talk about cooties? I don't know. Or people taking lives of them. It's just, it's just how we are, isn't it? But it's not how God is. God doesn't see anybody as them. We're all us. God loves every single one of us. God wants to be in a relationship with everyone. There's no us and them with Him. And John makes that clear in what is arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, all the Bible. John 3.16. You know that one? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's how God sees things. It's all us. He wants everybody to be in His family. And if we're going to be like Him, we need to be that way as well. We want to... We want to create a community, Jesus said, because that's who it started with. That's why God sent His Son. Not just to make it possible for us to all be one, all be us, but to model what that looks like. And and in our movement as followers of Jesus Christ, that's our goal too. That's how we need to do it. Jesus didn't see people in terms of us and them. He just thought everybody is going to be one of us. And he had this amazing way. Wherever he went, whatever he did, whoever he encountered, he just had this way of making people feel included, feel welcome, feel valued, whatever their story was. Well, this morning we want to look at one example of how that happened, how Jesus did that in John chapter 4. John tells us that Jesus had been teaching in Jerusalem and around in that area, and then uh, a lot of people came to believe in Jesus. We want to pick it up in verse 3 of John 4. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And then then he says something really interesting in in the next verse, verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. I I think we've got a map that we're going to put up on the screen. Let me see. Yeah, okay. Can't tell the colors very well, but down at the bottom, this is a this is a map of uh, Israel, Palestine, the, that area. And at the bottom, there's kind of a bluish colored section. That's Judea. That's the area around Jerusalem. And up at the top, there's kind of a pink or brown or whatever it looks like up there section. And that's Galilee. And Jesus had been teaching and talking to the Israelites down at the bottom in Judea. And he was about to go up to the top part, to Galilee. And in between those two sections where Israelites were in both places, there was a place, the the purple-looking place, is Samaria. And it says he had to go through Samaria. Well, there's the two main roads going north and south in that part of the world in that day are, are shown there. And it's pretty clear from seeing that you didn't have to go through Samaria because there is a road that goes around. You see the little loop that goes off to your right and then back over? Well, that was the Samaritan bypass. And any self-respecting Jew was going to take that road, even though it was considerably further, about 10 or 15 miles out of the way. 
Now, that might not sound much, like much if you're used to driving 50 or 70 miles an hour, but if you're walking, that's, that's a hike. But nobody, no good Jewish person was going to go straight through Samaria because you see there's some really bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Really, really bad. Uh, they were, the Samaritans were so despised by the Israelites. Israelites didn't want to be anywhere around them. And the Samaritans, they really hated the Jews in turn. You see, the Samaritans had uh, intermarried, married people of other nations, and so the Jews considered them half-breeds. They didn't worship the right way. They didn't wear the right kind of clothes. They didn't do things the right way. They just, they just had it all wrong. And the Jews thought that was just betrayal. They thought that was horrible. Well, the Jews despised the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them in turn. They had actually assisted some of Israel's enemies in wars that had happened. But it wasn't just one-sided. The, the Jewish high priest, about a century before Jesus comes along, had helped destroy a Samaritan temple. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. But Jesus says, we've got to take this road going straight through Samaria. <clears throat> and the disciples had to be wondering, what in the world is going on? Because you see, just like we do today, the disciples saw people as us and them. Two very different groups of people. Jesus never saw anybody that way. So they're going through Samaria and they come to this well. Here's what happens next, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. Now, I want to pause there for just a minute because we need to understand something about this setting. It's a very specific setting. There's a guy named Robert Alter who's written a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative, and he explores how settings made a difference in the way people listen to stories. To illustrate or to compare it with something we're more familiar with today, think of going to the movies and going to see a Western. Anybody ever seen a Western? They're not as popular as they once were, but most of us have been to see a Western. Some of us grew up on them, you know, when we were kids. There's Westerns all the time. Well, when you go to a movie and see a a, a movie like that, you know kind of how it's going to work. There's going to be the hero who is a guy with incredibly fast reflexes and accurate aim, that's going to have kind of a showdown with the bad guy who also has incredibly fast reflexes and deadly aim. And the good guy is going to tell the bad guy, you get out of town by sundown. And if he doesn't, there's going to be a showdown the next day at high noon on Main Street, right? I mean, that's just the way it happens. Now, there can be variations on the story. You might have the school teacher that is the sweetheart of the good guy, or there may be a sadder but wiser dance hall girl, or you might have a, a, a guy that comes to the aid, the loyal friend of the good guy that's the only one that's going to help him because the crooked landowner who holds sway over the townspeople, the weak, sniveling, cowardly townspeople has gotten everybody else cowing down. You know, there's all kinds of variations, but the basic gist of a Western is going to be pretty much the same, right? Well, Alter says, in this time, in this culture, when you came to a well, you knew what kind of a story this was going to be. You see, back in this day, they did not have uh, Lonely Hearts Clubs or Singles Bars. They didn't have Match.com or eHarmony.com or anything like that. If you wanted to meet somebody, you went to the well. 
And that's where a guy would go to hopefully meet his future wife. <clears throat> and the wealth story typically always worked sort of the same. The guy would come typically from a distant place, a different country or whatever, and he would come to the well, and this young maiden would be there, and one of them would get water for the other one, and then she would rush home to tell people the good news of this amazing guy she had met, and the family would invite him to come home to dinner, and then it would proceed from there. That's what happened in a well story. It was a boy meets girl story. It was the first century version of a romance, okay? Well, and and you can see this in the Old Testament. I mean, stop and think about it. Back in Genesis, Abraham wants to find a a bride for his son, Isaac, and he sends his emissary back back to the old country. And they go to the well, and there he meets Rebekah. And he, Rebecca, rushes home to tell her family what's happening, and he's invited to dinner, and it goes on from there. And then Jacob, when he has his falling out, when he deceives Isaac, he goes off to the far country, to, to the old country, and he meets Laban there. But more importantly, he's at the well, and he meets uh, Rachel. And he is a goner. I mean, he's just smitten. And the thing proceeds in the same fashion. She goes home, he's invited to dinner. Moses leaves Egypt and goes into the wilderness, and when he goes and meets Zipporah at a well, it happens again, and she becomes his wife. We see well stories happen over and over and over again. And Alter says, you see the same qualities, the same characteristics of a well story here, in John 4. Okay? Jesus comes to the well. Everybody knows, okay, this is a well. This is going to be a boy meets girl story. And that's where the problem is. Because the well's in the wrong place. It's in Samaria. And Jesus is the wrong guy. And when the woman comes, she's the wrong woman. It's a Samaritan woman. This is just all wrong, people are thinking. You can't do this. Well, look at verse 6. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. That's actually the wrong time of day. We'll come back to that in a minute. But we're told she comes to draw water. Now, back in the ancient world, drawing water was a menial task. Still is in undeveloped countries today. And it was usually relegated either to servants or to women. If you had a servant, the servant went and drew water. If you didn't, you did it yourself. She's here herself. That means, I mean, there was only two classes, high and low, rich and poor. And she wasn't this one. So she's poor. That means she doesn't have any resources to help Jesus with. She's the wrong tribe. She's the wrong religion. Wrong beliefs, wrong customs, wrong class. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You see, the woman got it. She understood how things are supposed to be, how you're supposed to act. You just don't do this. This guy's obviously a Jew from the way he's dressed. She can tell. You don't connect the two of them together. That that association uh, with these despised people is so strong that that one time uh, people wanted to insult Jesus. 
And they said, aren't we right in saying that you are demon-possessed and a Samaritan? They wanted to think of the two worst things they could call him. One of them was demon-possessed. The other was a Samaritan. Another time, Jesus and the disciples were walking through a Samaritan village. And understandably, they weren't terribly well-received. And when they got through, the disciples said, hey, you want to call a fire down from heaven and destroy them? You want to just toast them? And Jesus rebukes them. He said, no, that's not what we do. We have to understand this about Jesus. Jesus says there's no more us and them. Everybody's welcome. You see, when it came to this Jewish Samaritan thing, everybody said there's a line that you just don't cross. The problem is Jesus kept crossing the line. Probably the most famous story Jesus ever told is about a guy who was was robbed and beaten and left dead on the side of the road. And a Jewish priest comes along and he doesn't have to do anything to help the guy. And then sort of an assistant priest comes along and he doesn't do anything to help the guy. And finally, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. Not just a Samaritan, but we know him as the good Samaritan. That was unthinkable in those days. That'd be like us calling somebody a good Al-Qaeda operative or a good ISIS trooper. You're just unimaginable. It's inconceivable. That's what Jesus was doing. Well, she wasn't only the wrong tribe, the wrong religion, the wrong class, wrong everything. The fact that he talked to a woman is just mind-boggling. Because if you were a devout Jewish guy in this day, you didn't talk to even your wife in public. And if you were a single guy, you didn't talk to, you didn't touch, you didn't even look directly at a woman in public. It just wasn't done. So this woman, when she comes up to this well, and she can tell this is a Jewish guy sitting here, she knows he's not going to have anything to do with her. But he does. He actually has with this woman the longest conversation of anybody recorded in any of the Gospels. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. And she completely doesn't get it. It goes right over her head. And she asked, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? In other words, who do you think you are anyway? Promising stuff like this. So Jesus explains in verse 13, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's obviously intrigued by this strange Jewish guy. Obviously, she is thinking, wow, man, could I use some of that? And this is where the story takes a turn. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. This is a bit of an awkward moment, isn't it? Go call your husband. I don't have one. Yeah, but you've had five. This is tough. I don't know how Jesus knew, but however it happened, He knew. Here's the thing about this woman and about everybody you will ever meet. 
Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. Cindy tells me, my wife tells me, that from the time they're just a little girl, most women dream about getting married and the wedding and all of that stuff. Just dream about it over and over. I don't know what this lady dreamed about when she was a little girl, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't cycling through five failed marriages and then being left alone. That means that over and over, you see, women didn't have the right to initiate divorce proceedings. We kind of think of her as a little bit disgraceful, but the truth is she was mainly a victim. Over and over, time and again, she had had a man who stood and promised to love her and cherish her and be faithful to her. Later come back and say, I just don't love you anymore. I'm sorry, but it's over. I don't want you anymore. I can't imagine hearing that over and over and over again. Now, she's with a man who most likely won't even marry her. I don't know why. Maybe it's because she didn't feel like she had a choice. Maybe it's because she just felt so worthless. She didn't think she deserved better. Maybe it's because she was out of options. That's where she was. And it's pretty obvious she's ashamed of where she is. You you may not have noticed, but there are three things that if you lived in that culture would have jumped out at you immediately. I mean, stuck out like a sore thumb in how this happened. The first thing is that it was a well outside the city. The second is that she was alone when she came. And the third is that she came at noon. Because in all likelihood, there was a well inside the city. People put wells in the city. But she came outside. And when women went to draw water, they went in groups. They didn't go alone, but she's alone. And when you went to draw water, you'd either do it in the morning or the evening, and this is noon, the heat of the day. So here she is alone outside the city in the heat of the day to get water. Why? Most likely because she's an outcast. She's probably been excluded from her community because of her story, because of her past, because of her sin, because of her shame. And yet Jesus treats her with incredible dignity. When we understand the significance of what's going on here, and we hear her words back to Jesus, we understand the desperation in them. Sir, give me some of this water so I don't have to keep coming back here alone outside the city in the heat of the day, day after day after day. Too many people still in our day are living lives like that. The equivalent of alone outside the city in the heat of the day. Oh, they put on a good facade. They appear really respectable. But inside, they're aching over their past, aching over their story, aching over a situation that they feel helpless to deal with. She's saying, I don't want to come here anymore. Tell me how to get out of this situation. Jesus never avoids hard conversations with people, and he doesn't with her, because he knows the only way to get out of where you are is to confront it directly. 
And he does. Go call your husband and come back. You see, she doesn't want to talk about it. She, she wants to deal with anything but that. But Jesus says, no, that's, that's where I want to go. I mean, he sounded pretty good to her when he was talking about living water. Wow. But now he's just gotten downright personal, downright invasive. Because Jesus knows the only way you get through it is to deal with it, is to recognize it. Well, he asks her. She's thinking and calculating her response. Look at verse 17. I have no husband, she replied, which, which was true. Look what Jesus says. You see, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And we still do that today. We tell a truth, and we do it to hide the truth that we don't want to confront. Yeah, I'm having a little trouble with my thought life, which is true, they say. But it hides the truth that I'm online every night looking at porn. Well, our marriage is not, you know, we're kind of having a little bit of a rough patch, which is true. But it hides the truth that the wheels have come off and it's about to crash and burn. Well, you know, this has just been a hard time for me right now, which is true. But it hides the truth that I've taken to self-medicating with alcohol or drugs or some very difficult behavior. Why is it so hard for us to tell the truth? Well, maybe because we've just gotten so good at what we do, at evading and avoiding. Maybe because we're afraid how people will react, what they'll think of us, how they'll treat us. And you know the weird thing is? The longer we're in this church thing, the longer we're a follower of Jesus, the more difficult that seems to become. Because if you're a new believer, man, we've got all kinds of grace to give you. Man, I'm really struggling with this following Jesus stuff. This is so different. And, and we, we understand that and we embrace those people and we practically celebrate that confession. But if you're not, if you've been around for a while and we expect you to have achieved a certain level of spiritual maturity and you fess up, that you've got a mess in your life. Eh, we're not so gracious sometimes, are we? Got lots of grace for the unbeliever, for the new believer. For the longtime Christian, not so much. One of the favorite ways we like to hide because of that is the way the woman does here. She tries to get into a controversial religious discussion. Look at verse 19. So the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Oh, that's still our favorite way to avoid dealing with the mess in our own lives, folks. Let's just start a religious argument. Let's just start arguing about how we do church. But Jesus doesn't let that happen. 
because he understands that we have to deal with the real stuff that's the mess in our lives if we're going to become what he calls us to be. And arguing about doing church doesn't, doesn't get us off the hook. And he's not going there. He's not with this woman and with me and with you. He's not doing this to condemn. To the contrary, you know that, that famous verse, John 3.16, you know what the next verse says? God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through Him might be saved. You see, at this very moment when this woman confronts who she is and what her life has been like, she receives what she had never received before. She received grace. No matter what her story, no matter what part of her past, Jesus the person she met at the well provided total forgiveness, acceptance, and grace. He didn't come for religious people, for super spiritual people. Jesus came for broken people. And He still is here for broken people today. When we are in the business of covering up our brokenness, we fail to receive His grace. And if you've been around here for a while, maybe you'll understand that's why we talk so much about these connecting point groups. Because we need a place, not where we can go and be religious, but where we can go and be real. Where we can just be honest about who we are, what we're struggling with, what's going on in our lives, what's hurting so bad and be accepted and loved and prayed for and cared for and supported. See, there's a God who had to go through Samaria. He wouldn't go around. And He's not going to go around your pain and the mess in your life because He cares too much about you to leave that just laying there. The disciples looked at her and saw somebody that was a mess. Jesus looked at her and saw somebody to love. A woman who, who traveled a lot on business was about to board a flight. Over there in the, the passenger little lounge waiting, waiting to board was a new mom and her little baby. Sweet little thing. Had a pink bow right here glued to the top of her head where hair would one day come. You know. And the baby, every time somebody came by, the baby would say, Dad, 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 Dad. And the mom explained to this lady who was sitting nearby, she said, we've been gone from her daddy for, for a long time, you know, something like two days or something like that. And she's, she's looking forward to seeing her daddy. Well, they got on the plane, and the lady took her seat, and the mom and the baby came and sat down right beside her. And, and the, the mom was prepared. She, somebody told her, you need to keep her having some juice and that kind of stuff. So she'd give her a little bit of fruit and a little bit of juice. And she'd get a little fussy. She'd give her a little more fruit and a little more juice. And the plane took off. And it started to be a little bit of a rough flight. She kept giving her a little bit of fruit, a little bit of juice whenever it would get rough. And finally it got even rougher and the pilot told the flight attendants they had to be seated and stay seated. And she kept giving her the fruit and the juice and you know what's going to happen, don't you? I mean, it all came up. I mean, more, more fruit and juice came up than went down, it looked like, you know. And it didn't just come up a little bit. I mean, it was, every, it was all over the baby. It was all over the mom. It was all over their seat, all over the back of the seat in front of them, all over the lady sitting next to her. 
She said she was wondering whether she needed to cut the sleeve off of her suit or just burn the whole thing when she got home, you know. And everybody was real sweet to the little mom and the baby. They tried to console her and encourage her and, and, and support her. They would give her tissues and trying to help clean things up and everything. But the, the little mom was just horrified. And finally they landed, and she said she, everybody was getting off that plane just as quick as they could. And she got off and went to the baggage claim area, and she said as soon as she walked in, she saw a guy that she said, I know that had to be that baby's daddy. He had on white slacks and a nice shirt and, and a bouquet of flowers with a little green paper around them. And she said the, a couple of minutes later, the mom and the baby walked through the door, and he just made a beeline and she said she didn't want to say that the mom threw the baby at the boy, but she handed her off real quick. And she went to the restroom to try to clean herself up a little bit. And she said the whole time they waited for her bags to come, she looked and she saw that daddy holding that baby that had been such a mess. And just loving that baby and caressing that baby and kissing that baby. And saying, Daddy's babies come home. Daddy's babies come home. And he just never stopped loving on that baby. Where did we get the idea that our Father in heaven loves us any less than a new daddy in white slacks with a bouquet of flowers and a green paper? We've got to quit hiding. We've got to be real so that Jesus can provide the healing that he wants us to have. That's why we want to be a place where everybody's welcome, but there's no us versus them. And where you can come just as you are. If you're depressed and lonely and you don't know what you're going to do, just come as you are. If you've got some behaviors that have got a hold of you and you don't know how you're going to get out of it, just come as you are. If your marriage is falling apart, just come as you are. Whatever is going on, we want you to come just as you are to be a part of us at this place. Not because we want you to stay that way, but because we have a God who can get you out of that. So today we say to you, come as you are. You don't have to get cleaned up first. You don't have to fix everything. Just come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for loving us in all of the mess that we're in. Father, thank you for not going around our pain and our hurt and our messes, but for entering into them and bringing the healing that you alone are able to provide. Oh God, may we come to you just as we are, and may we receive all who come here just as they are. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.